Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 welcome to the georgine rice show podcast this program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 kpdq we hope you enjoy the show well good afternoon and welcome to the friday edition of the georgine rice show this is the day we lighten up and take a look at the lighter side of the news and we'll do that in just a few moments but first we do have some breaking news want to let you know that clark hilton is engineering james blinn producing today's program and we're glad you are with us. Well, if you haven't yet heard, President Donald Trump accepted the resignation of Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price today. The White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders announced late this afternoon Price had been under fire for his use of private charter flights. Secretary of Health and Human Services Thomas Price offered his resignation earlier today and the president accepted. Sanders said in a statement that was released this afternoon, evening um, Eastern time, the president intends to designate Don J. Wright of Virginia to serve as acting secretary, effective 11.59 p.m. on September 29th, Sanders uh, continued. Mr. Wright currently serves as the deputy assistant Se- uh, secretary for health and uh, director of the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion. Well, earlier today, the president had said that uh, Price was a very fine man, but he added, I certainly don't like the optics. I'm not happy. I can tell I can tell you that I'm not happy. Well, he came under fire for many domestic private chartered flights, such as from Washington to nearby locations like Philadelphia and New Hampshire. Some of his controversial flights were used for travel to Africa to review progress on Ebola and to participate in global health meetings in Europe. In his resignation letter, he wrote, I have spent 40 years both as a doctor and public servant putting people first. I regret that the recent events have created a distraction from these important objectives. Well, because of the controversy, he had said he would pay more than $51,887.31 back to the U.S. Treasury. That was a portion of the total transportation cost that would cover his expense, which would exceed $400,000 for the private charter domestic flights that not only transported him, but his staff. Politico also reported that the administration approved another $500,000 in cost for traveling on military planes for health conferences in Africa, Asia, and Europe. Well, during the period from the 20th of January through the 19th of this month, the Trump administration authorized 77 military flights, while the Obama administration allowed 94 during the same time period in 2009. Trump also noted this before boarding the Marine One in the White House South, uh, Southern Lawn. We put in an order that no more planes, if you look at past administrations, for instance, if you look at the Obama administration and take a look at the amount of time they spent in the air, they spent a lot, uh, a lot of time in the air. That's a quote. Uh, but I felt very badly which is what you do with your fingers. Anyway, it's another subject. But I felt very bad, if I can correct it, because Secretary Price is a good man, but we are looking into it, and we're looking into, a, into it very seriously, end quote. Well, in his resignation letter released by the White House, Price wrote, and I'm quoting, it is an honor and privilege to serve uh, serve you as Secretary of Health and Human Services. Under your leadership, the department is working aggressively to improve the health and well-being of all Americans. This includes working to reform a broken health care system, empower patients, reduce regulatory burdens, ensure global health security, and tackle clinical priorities such as the opioids 
uh, epidemic, serious mental illness, and childhood obesity. I have spent 40 years both as a doctor and public servant putting people first. I regret that recent events have created a, a distraction from these important objectives. Success on these issues is more important than any one person. In order for you to move forward without further disruption, I am officially tendering my resignation as the Secretary of Health and Human Services, effective 11.59 p.m. on Friday, September 29th. You may rest assured that I will continue to support your critical priorities going ahead because failure is not an option for the American people, end quote. In a statement, House Speaker Paul Ryan called Price a good man. Price has spent his entire adult life fighting for others, first as a physician and then as a legislator and public servant. He was a leader in the House and superb health secretary. His vision and hard work were vital to the House's success. Uh, passing our health care legislation. Of course, that only passed in the House, not in the Senate. During the Obama administration, a 2013 Government Accountability Office report found a similar problem in that case by the Justice Department. Two luxury jets the FBI had said were needed for security against global terrorism were used instead by Attorney General Eric Holder and FBI Director Robert Mueller, Holder's predecessor in the George W. Bush administration. Attorneys General Michael Mukasey and Alberto Gonzalez also used the jets. It came at a total of $11.4 million, according to the GAO. Well, HHS secretary isn't required to use non-commercial flights, as some national officials are. Uh, Fox reported that Holder in 2014 also took it uh, took at uh, government-owned Gulfstream and uh, flew to the Belmont Stakes thoroughbred race in New York with family and members of two security offices. The trip reportedly cost the government $14,440. Holder reimbursed the government 955 He did, was not uh, required to step down. The Washington Times reported that while serving as CIA director, Leon Panetta refunded the government $630 for flights on luxury jets that cost about 32000 Uh, per trip. Well, Price's international travels had involved significant work on health issues, so they were not uh, for uh, private use. But on May the 17th and 18th, he traveled to Liberia to meet with the country's leaders and health officials regarding the Ebola outbreak and the ravaged country in 2014. He met Liberian President Ellen Johnson, Sirleaf, and other top officials where he talked about the partnership with Liberia and the United States. He next traveled to Berlin to attend the G20 health ministerial uh, meeting held in May, uh, he met with the German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Uh, topics at that meeting included preparations to combat influenza viruses uh, with pandemic potential and uh, antimicrobial resistance and, and much more. His next stop was at the 70th Annual World Health Assembly in Geneva, the 194-member government body of the World Health Organization, where he spoke. The next major travel uh, in August, uh, where he visited China, Vietnam, and Japan. And uh, later in the same month, uh, he delivered the keynote address at the seventh high-level meeting on health and the economy of Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. He has now stepped down, and that will be official at 11.59 Eastern Time. Well, so much for uh, the more serious news. Uh, It's pretty important when a cabinet member steps down. I wanted to mention that, but we will, after the break here in just a moment, we'll take a look at some of the lighter side of the news. Also, at the end of the program, we'll let you know a little bit about some of the guests that we are working with, some we anticipate uh, that we'll have conversations with next week, and we're working on some other things as well. So stick around for some details on what to expect by way of interviews next week. All right, you're listening to Fun Friday on The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 18 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. There are cases that we've heard of, of a mistaken identity, even people who have been thought to be dead only to appear and say, no, I'm still here. Well, one Spanish woman wants to uh, prove that she's still alive because, well, no one's taking her word. She wants to open up a grave to prove that she's not in it. Juanita Escudero, she knows she's alive. She just can't prove it. She's 53 years old from uh, Acala de Guadera, a town outside of Seville in southern Spain. She's been unable to renew her driver's license or go to the doctor since 2010 because various government officers believe she is dead, the result of a seven-year-old clerical error. On May of um, 2010, a woman in Malaga was declared dead, and her information, including full name and date of birth, match um, Ms. Esquidero. Well, this caused the Social Security information to clash, and uh, she was subsequently declared deceased. Didn't matter if she showed up, deceased. I have suffered for more than six years, she says. Esquidero says that she first learned of the error when she visited the emergency room and her primary care physician checked her out. He looked at her, not knowing how to break it to her, and told her that, well, according to Social Security records, she is deceased. He gave her his condolences. Her daughter, Marta, told the newspaper, adding the family has not found the funny side of the story for a very long time now. Well, the doctor still treated Esquidaro because he knew she, who she was and the situation was urgent, but that the error needed to be fixed sooner rather than later. Well, 2010 is when it all started. At first, she thought it was just a computer error that could be fixed quickly at the Social Security offices, but that was not the case. They explained that someone probably made a typo or maybe it was a computer error, but we went to the Treasury, to the courts, and everywhere she appeared as deceased, she told the newspaper. When her husband passed away in 2011, she needed a certification of uh, life to receive widow's benefits, but instead was told she could be charged with identity fraud. On top of killing me, they find me without uh, hearing my story, she said. Esquidero joking that she is dead to everyone but the banks to whom she pays loans and mortgages on a regular basis. On the government's computers, I am dead, but for the banks, I am alive and kicking. And uh, they insist on being paid. In uh, April of last year, she found out that a woman with her name and data had been uh, buried six years prior to uh, Malaga, the first person I mentioned, about 127 miles away. She said her daughter called the cemetery, confirmed the burial date, and that the remains had been transferred to an ossuary because maintenance fees had not been paid. She also confirmed her mother's Social Security number and date of birth. Look, she said, my daughter told them, that person is my mother and she is here right next to me. Esquidaro said, well, imagine the woman's face at the cemetery. Well, earlier this month, she filled out a petition uh, with the courts to have the grave opened and has offered to do DNA testing, anything to prove that the woman buried is not her. Now, I'm not sure how a DNA test would make the difference unless her DNA is on record, but it's a good try. She says no one has explained to her how the woman has died, but believes that she'd been confused with a sister with whom she wa- has no contact and whose whereabouts had been unknown. She said she has no connection uh, with the deceased and, of course, is not herself deceased. Now, that would be a very difficult case to be made. Um, A DNA test might be helpful, but how do you prove that that's you and not anyway? You kind of get the idea. Well, the lengths to which some people will go to do what they want to do, authorities say a New Jersey woman, she made up a story that her granddaughter was missing inside a Walmart so that she and her son could shoplift. They needed clothes and candy. 
Police at Egg Harbor Township say that Donna Hall and her son uh, were charged on Tuesday for the incident. The police say that uh, she told employees that she had lost her eight-year-old um, granddaughter. She had last seen her in the store's jewelry section. Well, all of the attention, of course, shifted to the jewelry session, section, rather, and apparently she didn't need any jewelry, so that worked out. Security guards say they saw Nicholas Hall uh, filling bags with clothes and candy while in the store, uh, and the store was locked, by the way. Police later determined there was never a girl missing. Donna Hall, the grandmother, allegedly, was charged with uh, creating a false public alarm, shoplifting, and uh, the son was charged with shoplifting and drug possession. It wasn't immediately known if the pair had attorneys um, but they will face charges. Can you imagine creating that kind of furor uh, to divert attention away from your actual intention? Well, it didn't work. So I think the uh, moral of the story is quite clear. Well, workers digging at the Paul Revere House in Boston's historic North End neighborhood believe they may have found an archaeological jackpot, or at least a pot, that could give them a unique window into history. The Revere family outhouse. Not sure what value that might provide, but the possible privy site was discovered on Monday and diggers were attempting to open it up on Tuesday to investigate. Now, city archeo- uh, the city's archaeologist uh, told the local news that a find like this is important because people back in the colonial era threw a lot of stuff in their privies, stuff that could give insight into their lives. So apparently they were used for other things. <clears throat> Uh, you'd fill it up with, uh, you know what, and then also your household waste because everyone threw their trash out into that thing. Apparently the hole was quite deep. Uh, we're hoping to find the individual's waste themselves, which we can get seeds from uh, what they were eating. We can find parasites, find out what their health was, but then everything else that they threw out from the house is there as well. So we could find out that Paul Revere is a vegetarian. You may find that out, uh, among other things. He said the team found a four-by-six-foot brick rectangle, too small to be the foundation of a house or a shed. Typically, what you would do is you would uh, dig a big pit, you'd line it with bricks, uh, you'd typically uh, also line it with clay because you didn't want the contents to leach into your well. But the only way to confirm the true nature of the find was to dig into the potentially gross contents. Uh, we love finding privies, he went on to say. That's the archaeologist. We think we have one. The only way to find out is to, well, dig down into it and see what's uh, in the, uh, the the night soil, that kind of dark soil, which are now com- uh, composted and not uh, not that bad. But they might have, uh, well, a little something in it that's less than pleasant. The archaeological team already found a, the handle of a German-made beer stein from the 1700s, hundreds rather, as well as pieces of coal. If we start finding thousands of artifacts, then uh, we really know we're in a really important feature, the privy. Uh, the archaeologist said that there was a law in place in Boston starting in 1650 mandating that every household dig their privy at least six feet deep, but it doesn't mean everyone uh, followed the law. He said that I expect that at most we're going to uh, go down uh, that full six feet, I hope uh, to perhaps even deeper, but the home had uh, been a fixture in the North End since 1711, and they're looking forward to finding what they find in the privy. Who knew you could find such interesting things in the toilet? Yeah. Of course, now you can't put anything in the toilet and you can, well, yeah, it's only for one use today, so yes. it would not be very useful. Although you might want to uh, survey the Willamette River. I'm sure there's lots of information <laughs> floating around there. Well, a man in southwest Missouri 
proposed to his girlfriend with the help of a very, very tall friend. Zookeepers at the Dickerson Park Zoo on Sunday attached Cody Hall's engagement ring to a lanyard and hung it around the neck of a giraffe at the zoo on Sunday. His girlfriend, Michaela, she thought she was getting a behind-the-scenes tour of the zoo when the couple approached the giraffe enclosure. They gave us this spiel about how we're going to feed the giraffe and help participate in a training exercise. They showed us the training exercise, getting Millie, the giraffe, to uh, point at a big tennis ball with her nose. They gave Michaela a tree branch to feed the giraffe, and when it craned its neck out, the ring was hanging there. Oh, how romantic is that? Uh, they gave um, uh, they gave her the ring. Uh, Hall then got down on one knee and asked Blakely to marry him. Marriage was something we had been talking about, so I knew she would say yes, he says, but it's a different feeling when you ask the question and she says yes. It's still very surreal, even if the answer is expected. Now, was yours a romantic proposal? Were you down on one knee? Yeah, but not with a giraffe. Yeah, so yours was pretty dull and boring. No giraffe involved. It wasn't dull and boring, but it didn't involve animals, (laughs) no. Uh, Hall and his friend um, and the the zoo spokesman uh, helped him plan out this exotic proposal. We were able to make my dream proposal happen. Blakely and Hall are planning to have a spring wedding at the church where they met. The zoo shared photos of the engagement on its Facebook page, and they presumably will live happily ever after. I think mine was pretty just straightforward. It wasn't very fancy. There were no animals clearly involved, but (laughs) (laughs) that that would not have been good for our, uh, our marriage. But anyway... Speaking of marriage, a woman in Italy married herself in a small ceremony complete with bridesmaids and a wedding cake. Why would you go through all that trouble? The free gifts? Maybe. Do you give gifts when somebody marries themselves? Get some cake all to yourself. A 40-year-old fitness instructor and vlogger from a small town near Milan is believed to be the first woman in the country to marry herself. She said she first considered the idea of a solo wedding after the end of a 12-year relationship two years ago. I guess maybe she always wanted a wedding, and why not have one sans groom? I told my relatives and friends that if I had not found my soulmate, I would marry myself by my 40th birthday. So apparently she was more interested in the ceremony than the thing itself. A total of 70 guests attended the ceremony. Would you attend a ceremony of someone who is marrying themselves? Out of curiosity, probably. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, It holds uh, no legal weight to join in the celebration of self-love and acceptance as part of a trend known as sologamy. Uh, She said she remains open to the idea of getting married in the future. I don't know if she has to divorce herself before she can do that. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Can't that get really expensive if you have to divorce yourself before you can marry someone else? Yeah, and then there's the money issue. Who's going to pay for whom and so on. But doesn't require the social affirmation typically associated with a traditional marriage, she says. If one day I find a man with whom I can plan a future, I'll be happy. But my happiness does not depend on him. Well, that's a healthy attitude. I'm not sure I would marry myself over it, but anyway. It's going to be a fun honeymoon, though, huh? (laughs) Yeah, what do you do? Sit up and watch television with yourself. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on a fun Friday afternoon. You know, Sunday is October 1st, and Oregon's new distracted driving law kicks in. So make note, because the fines are rather steep compared to what we've known in the past. Well, a couple in Maine um, had a bit of uh, difficulty. 
Um, they had to be rescued after driving into the Atlantic Ocean. Now, maybe they weren't distracted, but uh, the firefighters uh, were called to the docks in Tremont. Uh, and this is again in Maine. Um, after uh, there were reports of two people trapped in a car in the water. Officials say the SUV was about was an eight to ten feet of water after they traveled down a boat ramp into the uh, into the water. It uh, can be a very dangerous thing. They were a bit distracted in their driving. Just a brief reminder that for us in the state of Oregon and for those of you in Washington who travel into Oregon, the rules have changed. So that starts out on uh, on Sunday. Well, KDKA-TV is reporting that a couple has been doing, um, well, one thing for many years. It's a mystery couple. They've been picking up checks for other customers at the Southwestern Pennsylvania restaurant, and it's a mystery. Uh, They've been doing it for years. This is um, uh, at the Applebee's in Washington, Pennsylvania, but only recently have their good deeds come to light. Uh, One observer says she was celebrating her daughter's birthday, only to find the couple recently uh, paid the entire tab for 16 people. Uh, Samantha Powell, the waitress for that party, says the gesture touched her, too, and almost brought her to tears. Uh, Bernie Lewis, the restaurant's assistant manager, says that she has uh, sworn to keep the couple's secret. They know uh, the owners know who the couple is and say they uh, own a local business. She says the man once told her he pays others checks because I grew up poor and now I'm not. What a generous gesture. And to do so anonymously, so no one knows uh, who's been doing it for a number of years. I don't know if you saw this, uh, Clark, but a Florida man shared a video of a very bizarre encounter where a nurse shark, apparently taking the idea of nursing quite seriously, latched onto his belly in the Gulf of Mexico and refused to let go. It stayed latched on for a good 30 minutes. Um, Irvin McCarty of Green Cove Springs posted a video on YouTube showing what happened when he was spearfishing and lobster diving off the coast of Marathon in the Florida Keys on Labor Day weekend. Well, he said he was diving for a grouper, uh, speared about 12 feet down when the nurse shark chomped down on his uh, flesh on his stomach. He says he turned to go uh, to go up for air and something hit him in the stomach. I don't know if somebody kicked me or, or what, but whatever it was, it it uh, it hurt. He was uh, bitten. I had to grab it with both hands, keep it from shaking, you know, because that's how they tear off the flesh and get up for air at the same time. He said it took about 20 minutes to get onto the boat with the nurse shark. It's still attached to his middle. I was out of breath. I was where it was wearing me out, he says, took everything I had to keep from keep the thing from shaking. Uh, He said that he and his friends tried to pry the shark off his skin, but they eventually had to resort to uh, stabbing it obviously ending its life. It took about six minutes for the shark to lose enough blood to cause it to let go. But the ocean creature uh, got in one last bite before surrendering. It hasn't uh, changed a thing. I'll continue to fish, he says, and that's by jumping in the water. I'll continue to snorkel. Just make sure there's not a nurse shark around. And um, uh, he's apparently going to fully recover. Officials said attacks by nurse sharks are fairly rare, with only about seven bites recorded in Florida during the past century. In 2016, a Florida woman who taken uh, was taken to the hospital when a nurse shark latched onto her arm and refused to let go. The shark was dead when she arrived at the hospital, but remained clamped onto her arm. So they are determined little creatures, and they're much smaller than the sharks that uh, we see in movies. And um, I'd say it's maybe two to three feet long, if that. Um, anyway, I wouldn't want to have one chomped down uh, on me and... Uh, Trying to keep the thing from ripping his flesh out was a something of a <laughs> of a challenge. That yeah. would be terrifying, I would think. 
I would think so. What would a Friday be without at least one story about a snake or maybe two? Well, on your show, that no such uh, time no exists. Such, because, and these are just a small fraction of the stories that uh, that I see on a daily basis, but a, a venomous snake slithered into an Australian couple's bed. I've seen some pretty troubling stories. This is uh, certainly among them. Snakes make us for strange bedfellows, rather. An Australian couple learned that uh, that lesson the hard way when a venomous visitor slithered into their home on Wednesday and cozily coiled up in their bed. The couple reportedly in their 30s found the eastern brown snake at about 10 a.m., so who knows how long it was there in their home, uh, which is south of Brisbane. The pair quickly dialed a local snake catcher to come and seize the serpent. They were much calmer than I would have been. I received a call from a woman informing me about the snake. The snake catcher says she told me that it was uh, uh, on their bedroom floor. Apparently it got out. But when I got there, the snake had quickly moved up to the couple's bed and he eventually found it under the blanket. <laughs> oh, my. Um, they captured the eastern brown snake, the second most poisonous snake in the world, <laughs> released it into the creek. Um, they didn't reveal the exact location where they set the snake free, but he said the snake was uh, placed in an area with enough food supply to keep it happy and far away from their residence. Uh, it would be pointless to leave them in the big open area with no food source so that they would just you know, come back home uh, to find food. Uh, they posted photos on elite snake checking, uh, catching their service, a Facebook page on Wednesday, show, Wednesday rather, showing the snake uh, in the bed sheets, and there was a picture accompanying the story. Not exactly the best place to encounter a highly venomous snake, the post read. Fortunately, these guys have no interest in humans and are only dangerous when interacting with them, which, of course, you might if you're in bed and they're in bed with you. However, in a situation like this, the outcome could have been unfavorable, it went on to say. Eastern brown snakes are the cause of the majority of snake, bikes, uh, snake bite deaths in Australia, according to the Australian Reptile Park. The snakes are found throughout most of eastern Australia. That's one of the things I'm grateful for is in this part of the Pacific Northwest, we don't have venomous snakes. Don't they have them in, uh, in central Oregon? Yes. I mean, this part, literally, you oh. know, where we are. Yeah, rattlesnakes and yeah. perhaps some others as well. I don't venture into those areas. Although once I was in Serbia and some friends took us um, on a long trip into some Roman, Roman ruins and uh, we, they made lunch for us there. It was just a, an amazing outing. And I went wandering around. I like to hike around. And uh, as I was hiking, one of them happened to notice I was some distance from where the crowd was, but noticed that I had wandered into what was a snake den. And I didn't see any snakes, but they are all down in little. It was not a safe place to be. That's the closest I've come. It was an Indiana come. Jones moment for you? Uh, it was worse than that. Uh, fortunately, mm. I didn't see any of them. So okay. that was good. And I was able to back out without panicking. But <laughs> snakes can be rather scary. Like this one. Again, in Australia, I have to check that off as a place I probably won't be visiting anytime soon. An Australian snake catcher was called to a family's home when they discovered a massive python coiled up in their child's booster seat at the dinner table. Really uninvited. Uh, the snake catcher 24-7, uh, Sunshine Coast, posted a video to Facebook showing the sight that greeted him when he was called 
uh, to Queensland in the home. The video showed a large carpet python coiled up in a child's booster seat at the family's dining room table, apparently waiting for breakfast. The family were at the dinner table enjoying their meal when mom discovered a massive carpet python curled up in the seat at the end of the table. The family jumped up from the uh, the table, left their meals and ran outside, called the uh, snake catcher. She had the doors uh, open during the day uh, to let the breeze come in. And that's how the big fella uh, would have gotten inside. Pretty crazy that this big snake had gone unnoticed for so long. It had apparently been uh, in the house for, for quite some time, found a cozy place, <laughs> and there it sat. Yeah. Now, my uh, my guess is this isn't quite as serious a snake as the uh, the brown snake, which is one of the more venomous in the country. Oh, by the way, a cobra with an unusual drinking problem had a can stuck to its head, was caught on camera struggling to escape its predicament. On a road in India, the video filmed on Monday shows the venomous snake thrashing around on a dirt road. Uh, The snake has an object stuck on its head that the filmer identified as a beer can. The serpent apparently poked its head in the can opening, possibly to search for food, and discovered it couldn't get back out. The filmer said the snake slithered off with the can still stuck on its head. Witnesses didn't attempt to help the danger uh, noodle during the... um, uh, during the incident for fear of a venomous bite. It's not clear whether the cobra was eventually able to free itself, but it certainly did make for an interesting image to see a long uh, snake with a can on its head. <laughs> so have we now uh, ended the snake portion of your show? I or think is that there uh, those three will cover, yeah. and they're all current stories. So these are not stories that occurred months or years ago. These are recent stories, which tells you there are snakes everywhere and they're waiting for you, or something like that. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a motorcycle officer in Maine carefully rescued a squirrel that was found with a cup stuck on its head. Oh, the ruins. Another animal with Another a cup or a can on its head? with a cup on its head. Well, the, the York Police Department shared video of the daring officer as he worked to free the frightened skunk from the tight situation. I mean, you don't want to frighten or alarm a skunk for reasons I don't need to explain. Mm. The police department said on a recent night shift, York Police Motorcycle Officer David McKinnon came to the rescue of a skunk in need of help. I'm not sure the skunk interpreted what was being done as help, but McKinnon tried his best to lure the distressed skunk to him while keeping himself away from its backside to avoid the possibility of a pungent response. He eventually managed to grab a hold of the cup with one hand and desperately tried to pull it off the skunk's head. Hmm. He <laughs> told the skunk after prying its head loose, there we go. See, you're okay. Well, McKinnon quickly backed up after fleeing or rather freeing the skunk, still wary of being sprayed. Uh, It's the first time that uh, that sort of uh, incident occurred, and the skunk, perhaps grateful, did not spray the officer. There you go. There's a human interest story. Now, did you hear about this? A German court has ordered a donkey's owner to pony up 5,800 euros, that's about $6,800, to the driver of a pricey McLaren sports car to cover damage caused when the animal chomped the backside of the vehicle. Now, what would compel a donkey to chomp the backside of a vehicle. Well, police said the that Vitus the donkey may have mistaken the orange McLaren, and it was a bright orange parked next to his enclosure, to be a giant carrot when he bit the back, damaging the paint and the carbon fiber piece, not to mention his teeth. 
Well, the news agency reported that the state court in Giessen on Thursday sided with the car owner who filed the suit after the donkey owner refused reimbursement for the incident last September. At the time, local media reported the owner of the donkey refused to pay for the damage, telling McLaren, the the owner, that he should have uh, picked a better parking place. But that was not sufficient um, response, and he will now have to pay at least 5,800 euros or $6,800 to... um, cover the cost of repairs to this bright orange, uh, very pricey sports car. It was uh, the color of a um, a carrot, and uh, you know who knows if that's what the donkey was thinking. But The occupants of a Porsche convertible driving on a Chinese road didn't put the top up when it started to rain. I mean, that's sort of inconvenient. They opted instead to drive with umbrellas. And boy, what a picture that made. The video filmed by a, an amused traveler on a road to Changzhou, um, show the Porsche traveling with its top down while heavy rains fall. The co- occupants in the car, rather, keep themselves and the car interior dry because it's a pretty small car and they were pretty big umbrellas. And there were two of them. The car appears to be toting a steel pipe in back uh, that may be the reason why the top couldn't be closed despite the weather. But again, it amused uh, fellow passengers as well as onlookers as they went down the highway driving a Porsche with umbrellas serving as the convertible top. Rich people. Yeah. (laughs) A tourist visiting Mexico captured video of a pair of mischievous raccoons wandering into a cafe to feast on food from the floor. The video filmed on Sunday showed the raccoons uh, boldly waltzing into the eatery near Tellum and capturing the attention of amused patrons. The trash pandas uh, 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 routed through the uh, floor scraps, which they quickly consumed. So what they spilled, they ate. They don't appear particularly bothered by the presence of the humans, but they keep a distance while foraging, and foraging they did. We were at the snack bar on holiday when a family of raccoons came looking for food, the filmer wrote. And uh, the raccoons were satisfied, and so were those who were amused by watching them. Speaking of raccoons, a Toronto bank sent a letter to customers explaining it will remain closed for the week due to being taken over by a gang of masked bandits. Sounds frightening, concerning Mm -hmm. if you uh, have money in the bank. But they were referring, of course, to a family of raccoons. A letter sent to to customers of the RBC branch of the Hillcrest Brackendale Bank uh, circulated on social media, revealed the reason behind the bank being closed. A family of raccoons had broken in the ceiling and uh, made it their home. So they had settled in. The letter signed by the branch manager says the unexpected repairs are projected to be completed in late October. So they apparently did quite a bit of damage. They did get into the roof, the spokesman said. Uh, it is true. Uh, it's not a quick fix. Toronto has been dealing with a string of raccoon-related problems in recent months. One trash panda, that's what they call them, was caught on camera in May when it peeked out from a hole in the ceiling over a baggage claim area in the, the Toronto Pearson International Airport. So apparently they're looking for high places to uh, set up household and eradicating them can be something of a challenge. So I love that trash panda. Yeah, that's what they call them, trash pandas. Took me a minute to figure that out. But speaking of being overrun or uh, trespassing, an Arizona woman whose dog pushed open her back door walked into the kitchen to find it overrun with dozens of chickens and at least one duck. No, not the Eugene duck, but you get the idea. The unamused Camp Verde residents uh, captured video Thursday after walking into her kitchen to find it overrun with the uh, poultry who were supposed to be in her yard. I mean, they were her chickens. 
The woman says in the video uh, that the dog opened the back door. There seems to be a bit of a situation in the kitchen. She videoed it, posted it, of course. The woman shouts at her dog to help herd the chickens and at uh, least one duck out of the house, but the canines refused to comply. Apparently they were amused. A flock of fearless chickens takes over the kitchen in the blink of an eye. The worthless watchdogs refuse to help, the woman wrote. She did eventually hustle them out of the kitchen, but not without... Uh, leaving a lot of feathers and mess behind. The moral of the story, either don't have chickens or don't have dogs because, well, you don't want them in your kitchen. (laughs) Well, there's an enormous coconut-cracking tree-dwelling rat that's been found in the Solomon Islands. It's an 18-inch rat that lives in trees. It can open coconuts with its teeth, has been discovered there. The rat, known as something I won't try to pronounce, has been particularly hard to find, becoming the first rat discovered in 80 years, according to mammologist Tyrone Lavery. I mean, who's looking? Uh, The new species is pretty spectacular. It's a big, giant rat. Spectacular probably wouldn't have been the word I chose, but he is, after all, a mammologist. He said in a press release, it's the first rat discovered in 80 years from the Solomons, and it's not like people haven't been trying. It was just so hard to find, but find it they have, and apparently it's enormous. For comparison purposes, a normal American rat weighs around 0.44 pounds. Not quite, you know, a pound. Uh, Solomon Island rats weigh about 2.2 pounds, um, approximately a foot and a half long from nose to tip of the tail, much bigger than I would care to have an encounter with. He had heard rumors that the creature existed since his first trip to the islands back in 2010. He questioned whether he would ever find one and wasn't sure it was um, really a new species or if it was just looking for the wrong thing in the wrong direction. He started to question if it really was a separate species, if it existed at all, or if people were just calling, well, regular black rats, Vika, as they call it. He said, if you're looking for something that lives on the ground, you're only looking for in two dimensions, left to right, forward and backward. If you're looking for something that can live in 30 foot tall trees, then there's a whole new dimension that you need to search for. Do rats live in trees? That's that's something. Apparently so. I think they can. Yeah. Yeah. He eventually teamed up with another uh, mammalologist or mammologist and finally found the creature as it was running uh, away from a fallen tree. Um, as soon as I examined the specimen, I knew it was something different. He said there were only eight known species of native rats from the Solomon Islands. And looking at the features of its skull, uh, I could rule out a bunch of species right away. So apparently he captured and dispatched the now um, rare rat. The Solomon Islands have become a hotbed for research scientists looking to make new discoveries. The country's located about a thousand miles northwest of Australia, you know, where all the snakes are, <laughs> is uh, biologically isolated with more than half of the mammals living on the chain of islands found nowhere else on Earth. So it's uh, quite a discovery, a very large rat that has the capacity to uh, break open a coconut shell to consume its contents. Well, let's hope there were two of them because they apparently killed the one they found and did research on it. Yeah. Is that a good thing? I'm not sure. Well, finally, a 14-month-old Tibetan terrier is safe and sound in her new Florida home after surviving Hurricane Irma, numerous thunderstorms, and, of course, heat. If the dog could talk, her owners, Robin and Dave Saltman of Ponte Verde Beach near Jacksonville, say she'd tell quite a story. 
Uh, They brought the dog from a Houston breeder in August. On the 11th of August, they were letting the dog run around outside and she escaped from their fence, uh, their fenced in yard with help from their daughter. They sought help through social media. Well, the Florida Times Union reports citing the dog. Um, uh, and, and many other reports started coming in on day 13. She was spotted 12 miles away. She ran off. But then the hurricane hit. Uh, Devlin was caught two days later, now safe. Uh, the dog has a new leash with GPS tracking capabilities and is happily reunited with uh, its owners. Wow, that's quite fortunate that the dog, first of all, survived the hurricane and then was able to uh, be reunited. Happy endings all around. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. About seven minutes after five o'clock, Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Well, on Fridays, we like to lighten up and have just a bit of fun. We do cover, you know, some of the top news stories if they break. And there was one we discussed with the resignation of uh, Secretary Price. But we're moving on to the lighter side of the news. Well, hundreds of people in Indiana's capital city came together to set a world's record by painting a massive chalk pavement mural. I'm not sure what the... uh, what the joy is in create in setting a world's record, but I suppose it can be exciting. About 500 people participated in this one. They drew more than 4,000 feet of chalk art on the Indianapolis Cultural Trail in uh, Indianapolis to claim the Guinness World Record for the largest chalk pavement art display. Now, the world record attempt was part of a three-day city cleanup effort by the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly and Company and nonprofit Keep Indianapolis Beautiful. Well, it certainly was beautification, I suppose you could argue. Today's Guinness World Record achievement showcased what's best about Indianapolis, the spokesperson told the uh, Indianapolis Star. Countless individuals and organizations came together not only to break a world record, but to demonstrate the change we can make by each doing a little bit. Well, Guinness um, adjudicator Christina Conlin uh, was on hand to measure the Uh, record-breaking mural and confirmed Indianapolis had, in fact, claimed the title. The final mural was uh, made up of 811 drawings, nearly double the record of 423 previously set by a community in Prince Edward Island, Canada, which is on my list of places to visit one day. That, of course, is where Anne of Green Gables spent much of her um, childhood, the fictitious character, but I've always wanted to go to Prince Edward Island. Anyway, the volunteers and Indianapolis community are truly officially amazing. So if you're looking for something amazing, you want want to go before winter sets in because that mural is uh, in place. The story is dated the 29th, so this is fairly recent. Who knows how long it will stay? It's only chalk after all. Well, a shipment of counterfeit Barbie dolls. I wonder, is that an an oxymoron? A counterfeit Barbie? (laughs) (laughs) A shipment of counterfeit Barbie dolls being shipped in a rail container from Canada was intercepted at a Minnesota border crossing. According to Customs, U.S. Customs and Border Protection said officers with the Office of Field Operations inspected a rail container at the International Falls Port of Entry and discovered it contained 3,004 toys that initially appeared to be Barbie dolls manufactured by Mattel, but in fact were counterfeit. A closer examination determined the dolls were uh They call it piratical. In other words, they were pirated, but it's piratical copies that violated Mattel's intellectual property. The counterfeit toys had a total suggested retail price of $85,824. 
Um, they continue to play a key role, the um, Customs and Border Protection, in intellectual property rights enforcement, says the International Falls Port Director. They continue to stay focused on combating the illegitimate trade in counterfeit products. Now, when I have traveled to China and to Vietnam, there are markets just full of all kinds of uh, knockouts, knockoffs, rather. One of the things that was really big at the time in, of one of my visits were the Beanie Babies. And you could find a Beanie Baby of every description and some that had never been produced. They were, of course, knockoffs, but people purchased them by the dozens, filled whole suitcases with them because that was going to be essentially their retirement plan. You have enough Beanie Babies, you keep them for a period of time, you sell them. Of course, you don't realize that everyone else on your block and the blocks down the way and in other cities, they're all doing the same thing. Yeah. So uh, I, I doubt that they have any value at all. They kept all the, you know, the uh, tags on mm-hmm. them and everything so that they mm-hmm. would have their full value. Well, they're probably pretty worthless right about now because there's a <laughs> glut of mm-hmm. beanie babies. So uh, counterfeits are um, sometimes difficult to um, to identify, but there were hundreds of thousands of them in the markets uh, when we were there some years back. Well, Burger King Russia has demanded the new It film be banned because its main character resembles a rival mascot, Ronald McDonald, uh, Ronald McDonald uh, and that violates ad laws. So oh, the dear. Burger King in Russia has demanded that the film be banned. This is the film that features an evil clown. Uh, the Russia division of the fast food chain filed a complaint with the federal anti-monopoly service claiming the character Pennywise resembles McDonald's clown. Which I'm sure McDonald's would be mortified to think that that has any resemblance at all. But Burger King said Pennywise's similar coloring, the use of balloons, makes him too similar to Ronald McDonald and violates Russia's advertising law. So there's no place for the film It in Russia, they argue. Well, a spokesperson uh, confirmed to The Hollywood Reporter that the complaint has been received and is being evaluated. We can't be concerned with the content of the film because the writer and director have their own creative understanding of any character, she said. But it did gross some $14 million in Russia since it opened in the country on September 7th. Hmm. So they might be a little late to the party if yeah. it's already there and being seen. But right. I, I Already have been already been seen. Yeah. yeah, it's a little insulting, I would think, to McDonald's that Burger King would make the suggestion that that clown <laughs> resembles Ronald McDonald, and that people seeing the film would immediately run out afterwards and get a burger. I I don't know, yeah. Big Mac. It it just doesn't seem to fit for me. But that's a big controversy in uh, in Russia. We'll see. Um, you know, once the film has had its run, I'm not sure it's going to make much of a difference, but. I think we mentioned that some of the fast food chains are now coming up with a line of clothing. If you're looking for a fashion statement, Taco Bell is now also launching a clothing line with Forever 21. Is there a market what, for this? What, you, yeah, what, what does that look like? Well, they have a variety of things, more casual clothing, but nonetheless, it's Taco Bell. You'll soon be able to wear your fast food pride on your sleeve, literally. They only come, I would guess, in larger sizes because if you're consuming a lot of it, you're going to need it. Taco Bell is teaming up with Forever 21, which is a clothing line for you know younger people, to launch a fashion line, which they promise to be hotter than Diablo sauce. Wow. wow. We would be frauds, frauds, if we didn't admit to kind of loving bargain clothing that displays a love of tacos. And that's apparently what this bargain does. Bargain clothing expressing a love of tacos. Yeah. The line, which comes out on the 11th of October, mark your calendars, includes a millennial pink pullover sweatshirt with Live Moss. 
logo embroidered uh, on it and a tank top inspired by a fire sauce packet. Yeah. So far, the only items uh, that have been seen are those two pieces modeled by a couple of super fans uh, who you may remember bucked tradition and shot their senior portraits at Taco Bell. Well, the fast food chain says the line will also include tops, bodysuits, cropped and regular hoodies, sweatshirts and anorak jackets. According to the press release, the pieces are updated with pops of color and distinct illustrations that effortlessly effortlessly uh, bring the heat, referring, of course, to hot sauce. The two brands mm-hmm. announced their collaboration via casting call, <laughs> encouraging fans to post photos and videos on social media with the tag hashtag F21 for Forever 21 times Taco Bell. Probably should have been plus, but you get the idea. At an after party in downtown Los Angeles on October 10th, some of the fan content will be incorporated into the debut. And you could really make a name for yourself. Wow. Uh, Only time will tell if the fast food brand will uh, make its way into closets anywhere. But they're um, what compelled Forever 21 to want to collaborate with Taco Bell to come up with clothing? I yeah. Who thought that was a great idea? I I do not know. They must have had a couple of couple too many of those hot sauce packets. Is this stuff going to sell? Yeah, I don't know. I do not. I'm surprised they have enough money to even launch such a thing because when you go, as I sometimes do, I'd like one taco and yes, I'd like hot sauce. She reaches into a vat, takes a fistful of hot sauce. I've got one taco and 35 packets of hot sauce. What are you supposed to do with that? Sounds about right, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, where do they get the money for this stuff when you're wasting all that hot sauce? But I digress. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You know, being in the hospital as a kid can be pretty tough, and especially if you're in for surgery. Well, the San Diego Children's Hospital unveiled a collection of remote-controlled luxury mini cars on Tuesday that allow its young patients to drive themselves to the operating room. <laughs> The cars at the Raddy Children's Hospital, that's R-A-D-Y, are actually operated by a nurse or a doctor and are part of a new program designed to make children more relaxed before their procedures. The kids are having fun. The parents are seeing that they are relaxed and that they're happy, says the doctor, the medical director of the surgical services at the hospital. The cars were donated by the San Diego Regional Law Enforcement Teddy Bear Drive. Children have uh, their pick of a BMW, Mercedes, or a Lamborghini. They'll never quite be... uh, content riding with their parents back home in the van after this, but uh, it ensures their ride to the operating room is a luxurious one, and they have a great time um, making their way from their hospital room or from the arms of their parents to this new little vehicle. Well, in Japan, caring for pets goes beyond the grave. At a pet rainbow fiesta, a pet funeral expo held in Tokyo, Visitors were given a host of options on performing rites for dead pets, including cremation, constructing a household altar, making offerings of incense. The basic funeral service fee is about oh, $860, 95,800 yen for a one a kilogram hamster or bird and can go up to um, 114,800, which is about a thousand U.S. dollars for a 20 kilogram dog, according to a funeral service company. A flower um, uh, coffin can be added for 30,000 yen, or a pet owner can hire the services of a violinist or a pianist to add somber music. The funeral rituals underscore a, a Japanese um, practice uh, that the uh, that the pets need to be ushered into uh, life after life. 
or something, even if that uh, comes at a tidy cost for your pet. Now, you might want to have some sort of ceremony when you're, what is your pet's about a 50 year, your cat's about She's 50 16. years old. 16. Yeah. So um, I would be happy to come and sing. Dan could play guitar, have a little ceremony. How much do you want? Uh, let's see. In Japan, it costs about $860. We would do it for 400 what no, if, no, no, don't thank us. We'd but if I just to, used one of you? 400 <laughs> no. Yeah, sorry. Okay. I won't be calling. Yeah, probably not. Is that cat still hanging on? Yes, and doing well, not just hanging on. Okay, I know Although she's... my daughter comes up sometimes and says, Daddy, Stormy dead yet? <laughs> I want a bunny <laughs> and a fish. <laughs> no. Oh. No. When Stormy... You know, heaven forbid, passes away any day now. Um, will <laughs> will she get a rabbit? No. Oh, what about a fish? Maybe. Maybe a fish. You know who takes care of that fish? Yeah, you. Yeah, we probably. did this. We did this last year, and it. She it, had a fish. Yeah, she did. Oh, I didn't know that. And for a while, she fed it, and then she didn't anymore. And so, Dad was always taking care of it. Yeah, that's probably about the case until she's yeah. eighteen. Yeah, I don't want a rabbit. Nothing's going to get stepped on. You just know it. Well, do if you have a rabbit for a pet, does it just romp around the house? What do you do with the rabbit? Or does it live outside? I have a cousin who has one. They've got one. Its name is Nibbles. It, oh, that's uh, cute. it lives inside. It's in a little... A cage? Uh, not really a cage. A little wire fence thing where it's got a... Just on the floor. Uh-huh. And uh, I think it's got some food dishes and... Do they use litter boxes? To, I, I think there's some kind of a... Litter box. Yeah. Huh. It's not like a cat litter box, but a... Something. Yeah. I know one of our coworkers, Justin, um, his family had, he and his daughters, the wife, they had uh, rabbits, and one of them wandered off and was never seen or heard from again. Mm. It's a little frightening if you have a, <laughs> a rabbit. He's eaten by a snake. Well, <laughs> probably. They saw a large snake with a big lump in the middle. Mm. Animal advocates are keeping close watch on Congress because there's a... Um, uh, concern that a moratorium on horse meat production may be in jeopardy. Now, it's it's interesting to me what we consider acceptable for a source of protein and what we don't. But Congress shut down the industry nearly a decade ago. They cut off funds for USDA meat inspectors. But in July, a key House committee approved an annual farm spending bill that would lift that ban. The full House that ratified the uh, uh, that shift in policy for the first time in two years, opening the door to reviving the industry that many Americans find repugnant because we like horses, but which uh, some horse owners view as a practical way to dispose of unwanted livestock. Horse meat is uh, consumed in a number of countries, including Mexico, Japan, France, and Belgium, two of the three U.S. slaughterhouses serving the export market before 2006 ban were in North Texas, uh, uh, Kaufman, and Fort Worth. So it wasn't being consumed here so much as elsewhere. Those who oppose the industry, a loose coalition of animal advocates and others who would assume who would prefer rather that you not eat anything that has four legs or fins, are optimistic that the Senate will extend the horse meat ban in its uh, version of the annual agriculture appropriations bill. But that is by no means certain. Are horses high in cholesterol? Do you get a lot of saturated fat? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I've not eaten horse, although I've eaten Lots of exotic meats. I went to, um, in Kenya, we went to a restaurant, and I know there's one here somewhere in the United States. It was called Carnivore, and they would come around with all kinds of exotic, strange, unfamiliar sources <laughs> of protein. Yeah. Don't ask. Don't <laughs> ask. Well, it was interesting because they came with a very large skewer, 
um, and there would be a you know a large piece of meat, and you'd say, I'd like to try that. They'd tell you what it is, and then they would just slice off as much as you wanted, and then they would come around with, you know, this is ostrich, this is uh, alligator, this is... It was a very interesting way to try lots of things, and, you know, with very little cost. I'm kind of disgusted. <laughs> oh, it was very... It was fascinating, actually. Mm. It was absolutely fascinating. Speaking of fascinating, a journey to plumb the remote ocean depths has revealed that Earth does indeed have an eighth continent. Hmm. A nine-week voyage took scientists from around the world to drill and explore the seafloor off New Zealand and Australia. They found evidence of land-based fossils revealing that the ancient landmass wasn't always buried beneath the waves. They're calling it Zealandia, kind of like New Zealand, but Zealandia, a sunken continent long lost beneath the oceans, uh, is giving up its uh, 60-million-year-old, or some number of years, secrets through scientific ocean drilling, they're saying. Um, the area is so remote that few geologists have ever explored that region. To answer questions about the mysterious continent, scientists aboard this uh, uh, vehicle of some sort, a research drilling vessel, drilled sediment cores from six sites along the ocean seabed that makes up uh, Zealandia. The cores plumbed about 8,200 feet uh, below the surface, revealing uh, ancient continent's uh, history. The team found a treasure trove of fossils that... Zealandia wasn't always under the ocean. More than uh, 8,000 specimens were studied. Several hundred fossil species were identified, uh, according to the co-chief of the expedition. Um, Australia, Antarctica, and New Zealand were all part of a mega continent some time ago. The new drilling revealed that although Zealandia split off from these regions and sank below water uh, many years ago, the chain of volcanic uh, uh, volcanism rather that makes up the Pacific's ring of fire may have caused Zealandia to buckle about 40 million to, f- um, they say, years ago, which also dramatically reshaped the landscape, you know, give or take a millennium. Anyway, Zealandia, one more continent that may have been above the surface. Well, jeans are most definitely a staple that, um, along with everyone, well, it's certainly for my generation, maybe not so much now, could never uh, live without. Similar to modern marvels like the refrigerator, it's uh, hard to imagine a world where people actually got dressed without them as a wardrobe option. Uh, and though you may feel that you know everything about your favorite pair, we always think that there are features uh, that you might have overlooked. Not sure what we're talking about? Well, Take a quick look at the uh, jeans that you might be wearing or the jeans in your closet or your drawer. That small button, uh, the small buttons called rivets, uh, believe it or not, they have actually been a key element in most all pairs of jeans for the last 150 years. Up until recently, it was assumed that these were just odd little embellishments, but now we know much more noteworthy reasons as to why they're there. We'll share those with you when we come back in a moment from the break. Um, but uh, jeans were a staple for me all through college, certainly. I probably wore them every day. I wasn't dressed up for, you know, something like church. But once you came home and dressed down, you put the jeans back on. Anyway, we'll talk about the denim marvels that uh, most of us at one time or another have worn. 31 minutes after 5, be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, Clark Hilton Engineering. So, yeah, big plans for the weekend, Clark? Yeah, the girls are out of town, so it's just me. Wow. So I when they get I'm home... I'm going to go to a movie tonight. I'm going to 
Make some more applesauce. I might go pick some apples tomorrow and make even more applesauce. No, I should mention that Clark, we had some apps. Somebody brought apples here, and Clark made applesauce, and it was really, really good. I'm impressed. I didn't know well, you, uh, you did that sort of thing. Is applesauce kind of your thing? It is now. <laughs> well, it's actually very, very good. I'm wondering about if you could make something out of pears, a, a pear sauce. Doesn't that sound kind of good? Maybe not? I don't know about that. Oh. Okay, never mind. Anyway, we were talking about those little rivets on your jeans and whether or not they're simply a fashion statement or they actually have purpose. Well, denim is truly one of the most durable and wearable fabrics that there is. That's why companies like Levi Strauss still use it for their classic pants. When jeans were initially designed, no one could have guessed that they would uh, become the epitome of all things hip. In fact, uh, when the the first company started making these pants, they only had workers and laborers in mind, and they certainly were not a fashion statement. Well, many jean makers had the right idea when it came to the fabric, but unfortunately, clothiers were running into uh, quite a bit of trouble when it came to their commodity. See, their customers would often end up complaining about rips and holes that would appear around the uh, in and around the pocket area. Luckily, the hero of our story is the tailor, Jacob Davis. He found an ingenious way to keep these uh, pants intact without sacrificing too much style, which, of course, they weren't all that concerned about initially. He decided to focus on the trouble areas, plural, and ended up reinforcing it by tacking on teeny tiny buttons along the top of the vulnerable seams. Now, this small addition helped to ensure that the pocket area would, uh, would never come unhinged. How clever was that? Well, once he realized just how lucrative his discovery could be, he contacted Levi Strauss, one of his customers, and the two went into business together. The denim-loving duo was then granted a patent for the very first pair of riveted trousers back in 1873. Now, the reason why you still see these buttons on your uh, jeans or rivets today is quite incredible. Simply put, jean makers use trivets or rivets, whatever however you want to refer to them, because they work better than anything else. Now, this denim technology hasn't changed in the past 150 years because David ended up perfecting the, the uh, problem very early on. It's a remarkable element of the story to ruminate on, especially considering how quickly our products uh, change and evolve these days, that this particular design has lasted and stood the test of time. To find out more about how these mysterious buttons ended up coming to fruition, um, you can look up uh, Levi Strauss and find out more about the rivets on the pants we love so well. Let me ask you, have you ever felt betrumped? No, it's not a political phrase. Or um, like a silly Tonian. Or maybe you fancy yourself a bit of a percher. Well, you wouldn't know because all of those words have fallen out of the English language, even though we could really do with them today or use them today. The language experts at the University of York, yes, that's not in the U.S., have compiled a list of lost words that fit within themes that could be highly relevant to modern life. These are post-truth deception appearance um, personality and behavior and emotions. Hmm. Well, the linguists, in um, partnership with Privilege in, uh, Privilege Insurance, rather, scoured historic tasks and etymological dictionaries to compile a list of words that we might find useful today, with the ultimate goal of bringing back everyday English. Uh, a senior lecturer in language and linguistic science at the University of York said, "As professional linguists and historians of English." 
We were intrigued by the challenge of developing a list of lost words that are still relevant to modern life and that we could potentially campaign to bring back into modern day language. I'm not sure how a linguist campaigns to do anything, but anyway, (laughs) what about this word, ambidexter? Now, we know ambidexterous, but what about ambidexter? It's an old word. It means one who takes bribes from both sides. Are you an ambidexter? Uh, be Trump, as I mentioned earlier, it means to deceive, cheat, elude, slip from. Well, all right, let's leave it alone. <laughs> it's, it's Friday. There's the Coney catch to swindle, cheat, trick, dupe, deceive. Why are they picking all of these words? The hugger mugger. Once very commonly used, it uh, means concealment and secrecy. Hugger mugger? Hugger mugger. Then there's the quack solver. I is an old hugger mugger. <laughs> the quack solver is a person who dishonestly claims knowledge or skill in medicine, a peddler of false cures. A quack solver. Also I'm, known as a snake oil salesman? Yeah. Or? I'm guessing salve has something to do with the word and a quack. You put those together. There is the rauker, a person who whispers or murmurs, one who spreads tales or rumors. In other words, a gossip. We have a word for that. There's the man milliner. Uh, excuse me, millinery, the man millinery, they're hyphenated, suggestive of male vanity or pomposity. Um, now, there's a word for you, yeah. pomposity. You're so vain is the song that comes to mind. Hmm. Vanity or pomposity. There's the Pargit, not to be confused with the very popular retail store. The Pargit is the daub or plaster. Uh, with uh, you plaster your face or body with powder or paint, a pargit. Why would anyone do that? I don't know. There's the snout fair. Now, this is actually a compliment. If someone comes up to you and says you are snout fair, you should uh, consider that a compliment. Having a fair countenance, fair-faced, comely, and handsome. Can I tell you, Clark? If you said that now. I think you're snout fair. Someone would think it would have something to do with their nose. (laughs) Yeah, you would think so. Um, Let's see, a lozenger. A false flatterer, a lying rascal, and a deceiver, a lozenger. What so about a, not somebody that's sucking on a lawn at lozenger. No, no, no. What about a momist? A person who habitually finds fault, a harsh critic, a momist. Uh, then there's the peacock size. To behave like a peacock or pose or strut ostens- ostentatiously. A peacus, peacock size. Yeah, I don't like that. No. A percher. A person who aspires to a higher rank or status, an ambitious or self-assertive person, a percher. They're perching themselves uh, in a position that they can rise quickly. Um, How about the rough to swagger, blustered, domineer, to rough it out or to brag or boast uh, of a thing, a rough spelled as you would expect. And then there's the silly Tonian, a silly or gullible person who considers who one considers as belonging to a notional sect of such people, a notional sect, a Silitonian. There's the fumish, inclined to, or the, maybe it's fumish, inclined to fume, hot-tempered, irascible, passionate. Are you fumish? Um, let's see, the merry-go-sorry, a mixture of joy and sorrow, a merry-go-sorry, a stomaching, full of malignancy, given to cherish anger or resentment. Hmm. Should we reintroduce swerk, not to be confused with twerk, which I hope I never see or hear again. Swerk is to be or become dark, gloomy, troubled, or sad. I sometimes find that I am a swerk. Is it a noun? Is it a verb? I'm not sure. Swerking? 
Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. And then there's teen. Okay, we have that word, but what does it mean in this context? To vex, irritate, annoy, anger, engage, to conflict, to rather inflict suffering upon. Oh, teen, that's probably, <laughs> probably about right. Um, how about trimblabble? Trimblabble. Causing dread or horror. A trimblabble. There's a waste heart. A waste heart, one word. Used to express grief, pity, regret, disappointment, or concern. A waste heart. In other words, you're wasting away in grief. A lot of these are $10 words where the 50-cent version would do just as well. Which is probably why we're not using them any longer. They're no longer um, needed. What about a a wape? To amaze, stupefy with fear, confound utterly. A wape. And then there's a huge, H-U-G-G-E. How would you pronounce that? Huge. I'm not sure. To shudder, shrink. Shiver or shake with fear or with cold. Hmm. Anyway, they're trying to reintroduce these um, these fine words. I'm not sure they're, <laughs> they're going to make it. But not necessary. For the linguist who wants to make a name for himself, this might be the way to go. Dominic Watt, who's the senior lecturer in language and ling- linguistic science at the University of York, says that as a professional and a historian of English, they were intrigued by the challenge of developing this list of lost words that are still relevant. Are they? Uh, to modern life, that they could potentially campaign to bring back into modern language. I think that's a campaign that they might want to abandon. (laughs) Anyway, forgotten words uh, that were once rather popular. Uh, Sillytonian. I think today's program is somewhat Sillytonian. And what does that mean again? I'll have to look it up. Sillytonian. A (laughs) silly or gullible person who considered uh, as belonging to a notional sect of such people. I barely know what that means. Yeah, but decipher that sentence. <laughs> and I'm not sure again if it's a noun or a verb or what it's. I, well, it's a silitonian, silitonian. So I guess it's. A, I don't. Bad, yeah, 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 adjective. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Uh, anyway, well, we are. Um, We're about out of time. <laughs> <laughs> You'd really like that to be the case, wouldn't you? We actually are. So we'll take a break here in a moment. And when we come back, we'll uh, tell you a little bit about what's uh, coming up this next week. So I hope you'll plan to join us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Silitonian. Silitonian. Tony Sillian. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm really looking forward to the weekend. It begins officially here in about, what, 15 minutes? 6 o'clock p.m. The week is officially drawing to a close. Uh, but I'm going to have to spend much of the weekend trying to come up with a new password. Uh, as you know, he, James, that here at KPDQ, we are required to update our, our password every, um, what is it, every six to eight weeks. There's not enough space in my cranium. Days. Is it 90 days? There's not enough space in my cranium for more passwords. And then you can't repeat what you've already done for at least two or three of those cycles. So I'm going to have to sit around all weekend while I'm nursing Dan Rice Trying to figure out what my next password will be. Well, try not to hurt yourself with that. Well, I've every clever password I could ever have conceived of has already been used. I'm I'm out of uh, I'm out of ideas. So I, I got just, nothing. I just go through a cycle of several, and uh, that are just just enough. Uh, the cycle's just long enough that it doesn't mess with the system. So I pretty much always know where I am. But uh, about two weeks ago, I uh, changed my password here, and 
I must have not only made a typo, but made it twice because I wound up locking myself out of the my email <laughs> for about a half a day. It wasn't fun. Oh, really? What? How do you get out of that? I mean, how do you get back in? We have an internal website. We can go to reset our password, or if we have to, we can call IT. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know I, the, the boring innards of KPDQ. I've put it off uh, before uh, to the point where I couldn't get in at all because I my password had expired. I wasn't able to access the... Thing. So anyway, I'm going to have to spend some time trying to think about that. The clock is My ticking. producer is awesome one. I think that's that's a good one right there. No, I think you should be truthful. If you're going to come up with a password, it's something you actually believe, and that would probably be easier to remember. My producer knows how to shut my mic off one. <laughs> well, that is true. <clears throat> a quick look at what's coming up next week on the program, among other things. These, of course, are some of the guests that we're working on. All righty then. Uh, on Monday, we're going to talk with uh, Donna Gaines. The title of her book, Choose Wisely, Live Fully. Lessons from Wisdom and Folly, the Two Women of Proverbs. I'm really looking forward to that. Haven't had a chance to crack the book open yet, but looking forward to that, as well as my conversation with its author, Donna Gaines. On Tuesday, Brian McClanahan will be my guest. This is going to be an unpopular title to those of you who really enjoyed the musical play, on um, Alexander Hamilton. Well, his book is titled How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. What? But have you heard the music? Anyway, we'll talk to him about the historic figure, Alexander Hamilton, and why he suggests he screwed up America. That's Tuesday. Uh, Also on Tuesday, we're going to talk with Josh Temple. The name might be familiar to you. He's the host of the uh, DIY Network's Disaster House, and we're going to talk about um, home disaster Tips. Now, this isn't if, you know, you've spilled something on the floor and it's been there too long and you can't get it up. We're talking about actual disaster. In the event that we were to face uh, a catastrophic event here in the Portland metro and southwest uh, Washington area, what, what do you do? What are some of the tips that we need to be aware of that might help us survive a bit better? So Josh Temple will join us. We're not predicting anything. We're just uh, encouraging people to be prepared. On um, Thursday, we're talking with Jeff Kinley. The uh, the title of the book, The End of America, it has a question mark there. So he's not predicting, once again, he's not predicting the end of America, uh, America but asking the question in view of uh, Bible prophecy and a country in crisis. So uh, that's th- uh, the lineup that we're working on, that we've already booked. We're working on some other things as well for next week's program. Also, I want to remind you that we have... A pastor's appreciation breakfast that's coming up, and we want you to come. Now, I know pastors have a lot on their plate, pun intended, uh, and you have um, a lot of responsibility. We want to invite you to come and join us for the sole purpose of giving us the opportunity to say how much we appreciate you, how highly we regard you, uh, how much we recognize uh, of the sacrifices that you and your family make um, in order to serve in leadership in the body of Christ. So we want to invite pastors, their associates, and other church leaders to join us for our Pastor Appreciation Breakfast. Now that's coming up on Tuesday, October the 10th, and we're going to be at the Embassy Suites at the airport. Our guest speaker is Brian Chapel, and we'll uh, tell you more about that in just a moment. But this is our opportunity to honor our area pastors, associates, their spouses, again on Tuesday the 10th with a free breakfast. You can join us uh, at the Embassy Suites near the Portland airport for delicious food, 
some fellowship and an encouraging message from Brian Chapel of Unlimited Grace Radio Ministry. All those in attendance uh, will be entered to win a two-night stay at the Lazy Moon Lodge in Eagle Crest Resort. Hmm, I might take up the pastorate just for that. And if you'd like to attend this free event, please RSVP by the 9th. Uh, you got about a week, a little over a week uh, to do that. Uh, and you can uh, do that at kpdq.com. You can look for the uh, uh, Pastor Appreciation Breakfast logo at the top of the page. So we look forward to thanking you at this special event again at Embassy, Embassy Suites by the Hilton Portland Airport on Northeast 82nd Avenue uh, for the Pastor Appreciation Breakfast. It's going to be a fun time. I always uh, look forward to that. Between the uh, Pastor Appreciation event and the uh, golf tournament, those are my two favorite events of the season. So anyway, looking forward to uh, looking forward to that. Uh, beyond that, I'll be working on a password, preparing for this week. I'm thinking about Sillytonian. You know the word we mentioned earlier, Sillytonian? Um, that might be a good password, although now I've said it aloud, so can't use that. No, that, that's kind of the key. I, I think the key to password security, I mean, apart from all the different things you can do, and, uh, you know, I, I, th- I think actually not blurting it over the radio is probably <laughs> a good start. Yeah, but the it, thing is, when you say it over the radio, everyone like you would assume, well, now that she said it over the radio, she's not going to use it, which makes it the perfect password because now no one thinks I'll use it until, of course, I've just announced that I don't think anybody thinks I'll use it, in which case they now know I will use it. So now I can't use it. Man, it's going to be a long weekend. Which means that you have to use it because they think you're not going to, but you're going to, but you're not going to. So I think so I, I think will. that comes back around to using it again. Okay. I'm so confused, though. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Anyway, I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great weekend. I'll just be trying to figure out a password. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.